You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Guys, grab a seat. How y'all doing? Good. Teddy, I'm glad you're doing excellent. So good to see you front row. Be easy on me, okay, Teddy? All right, all right. Hey, so yeah, uh, I can just, I can sense it. Like in the room, y'all are like, two verses. This is going to be Randall's shortest sermon. How possibly could he go even beyond 20 minutes with this? Well, just wait and see. Just wait and see, okay? No, so here's the deal. Like, We've been on this like kind of crazy journey and we haven't been very overtly like kind of just playing about this or, or, or really made a big deal out of it. But we really had a design that we kind of loosely wanted to tie together this year's preaching calendar. So we back up to Exodus is where we started this year. And Exodus reveals to us this history, this story of how God formed a people, how God formed a nation and how God gave that nation a distinct culture, a distinct set of rules and laws to live by, and a distinct mission um, out of the uniqueness of who they were because of who God formed them to be. They were to be a people that would bless all the nations. God gave them this particular piece of land, um, this promised land to them where they would develop into um, a robust people that would then go and bless the nation. Now, like as you know, the story as it unfolds, um, it wasn't quite as clean as that. Uh, But then we wanted to then introduce a gospel. And so we got to Mark. And what we see in Mark is that God is sending a king to his people, to all of his creation. And then because of that king and the work that he does, he's now forming a new people Um, a completely new people with a completely new kingdom. And then we get to this letter that that Peter writes, right? And Peter writes a letter to those people that God has now formed through the covenant of his grace. And Peter tells these newly formed people how they are to live and operate in this world. So it's a letter. It's a letter about God's people how they're formed as a people, who they are formed to be, and what they are formed to do. That's why Peter will tell us, and we'll see this in the next few weeks, in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Peter states the identity of these people. He's not giving an identity to these people, which is us, the church, right? But he, rather, he's speaking the identity that God has formed them in to be. And he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were not a people, but now you are. Like now you are something and now you belong to God and riddled in those couple of verses, you can see that God, as he's forming a people, he's doing something entirely different now. There's a, there's a transformation that happens. There's an identity that is formed. And even just this piece about like, once you were called out of like darkness, right? 
the darkness of this world, the darkness of this sin-riddled world, and now you're delivered into something new, which is filled with marvelous light. And so we're even meant to see that like positionally, as God's people, we're formed differently. So because of all of that, because of this simple yet very profound truth, the way that we live, the way that we interact, the way that we engage in the culture and the world around us, it's going to be a little weird. We're going to be seen as a little weird and distinct. A couple of things before we jump in. This letter is mainly about remaining faithful to Jesus, no matter what you face, no matter what life hands to you. And it's about the church, God's people then, remaining faithful no matter where it finds itself in culture or whatever culture it finds itself in. And in most cases, more than likely where God's people will find themselves in any culture is at the margins of society. And it will encourage us to remain faithful to the mission that Jesus has a church for. To be a people who would loving and lovingly and graciously point our neighbors and city to the living hope that we have in Christ. And to faithfully live out the ethics and the values of the kingdom that we now belong to. So this morning, we're going to be looking at really just like the first two verses that Matt just read. So before we do, let me, let me pray one more time and ask God to help us, our hearts to be open. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you just one more time. We want to come humbly before you and God ask that you would prepare our hearts for the truth of the gospel. It's what we desperately need. Even those of us that have been following you for so many years, what we need today is the truth of the gospel. And so may it come alive in our hearts. May we be set apart and sanctified for good works, for righteousness. May we walk out of here being shaped and formed more and more into the image of the Son that you love. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, so like right off the bat, like we need to do some, some work to kind of frame this up, right? Because not all of us have been here. Um, if you have been here through the teaching series that we did through Mark's gospel, one of the things that we kind of like wrestled through and kind of discussed is certainly Mark was heavily influenced by this guy, Peter, right? And so Mark and Peter were traveling companions. And so a lot of what we get in Mark's gospel, which Mark, by the way, was not one of the original 12 disciples. Peter was. I think in a lot of ways we get Mark's account through the lens of Peter, um, sharing these stories of what occurred. Like Mark wasn't there when Peter sat on top of the mountain and saw Jesus do something that is crazy, right? He's transfigured or transformed into all of his glory and revealed as the lion of Judah, the, the lamb that would be slaughtered. He sees all of it, right? Well, Mark wasn't there, and so Mark doesn't write about it, but you get this perspective, though, that Peter is infusing these events. And so right off the bat, we get this letter, and Peter just opens it up with, well, who he is. He just says Peter, right? But then we get this further description. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we'll just stop there because most of us, especially if you, again, we're here in this series through Mark, you should at least recognize the name of Peter, right? As we ended Mark's gospel, Mark intentionally almost parallels not to overshadow Jesus, certainly 
Mark wants to elevate Jesus as superior and sufficient in his gospel. He is the point of Mark's gospel. But we see this like unique kind of literary style where he's highlighting the events that are happening with Jesus through the end of his life, through his trial and his death and his resurrection. But then we see Peter, like, and we see these parallel things happening. So we should at least be familiar because Mark gets really Peter heavy at the end of it, right? So we should recognize that name. Um, and much of what we see in Mark's gospel, if you remember, like it's not flattering to Peter at all, right? Like if, if, Mark had, if Peter had nothing to do with Mark's gospel, then I think Peter would probably be a little upset at Mark's gospel because what the picture that we get of Peter in Mark's gospel is a faltering and failing disciple, right? Prone to rash and bold statements in one moment and the next we see him cowering and recanting from those statements. But just in case you haven't been tuning in, I, I want to make sure that like we're on the same page with this. Peter, well, he was not actually originally Peter, right? His real name was Simon and he's like an OG disciple. He's like a original gangster disciple. I don't know what that means, but that's what he was, right? So he was a fisherman by trade. And what we know um, from John's gospel is that he had at least one brother named Andrew. And we know because in, early on in John's gospel, as we see this scene unfolding where we get John the baptizer, Jesus's cousin, he's announcing and proclaiming that the Messiah is here. He's in the person of Jesus. John baptizes him. Well, Andrew witnesses all of this interaction, right? And he's so hopeful that what he just saw was real. He's so hopeful that what he just saw between John and Jesus is that, is that now the Messiah who has been promised that they've been waiting for is here in the person of Jesus. So he takes off on foot to go find his brother Simon and tell him like, listen, I think the Messiah is here. And he brings him back to Jesus and Jesus kind of looks Simon up and down and says, Oh, so you're, you're Simon. Like, I know who your dad is, John, right? And Simon's like, yeah. Well, from now on, you're going to, like the first thing out of the gate that Jesus does with this guy is from now on, you're going to be known by a different name, right? It's not a nickname. He says, from now on, you're going to be known as Peter or Cephas in the Greek, which is, which is this term for the rock or rock, right? So he renames him from Simon and says, from now on, you're the rock, right? And so as we've discovered throughout our time in John's gospel, Peter ends up being one of Jesus's closest friends and followers. He was there. He saw firsthand these amazing miracles of Jesus. He heard and, and really had a front row seat to the impact of Jesus's teachings and he saw, like before his eyes, this ever-increasing tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. There was not much that Peter was not privy to in the life of Jesus. And by, by Mark's account, he's the only disciple, right, that follows Jesus in those most intimate moments, the last moments of his life. He follows Jesus as he's arrested. He follows Jesus as he's standing before the high priest and falsely accused and beaten by his people. But if there's one thing that most defines Peter throughout the Gospels, and we just walked through all of this, right? It's his denial. It's the fact that he stands so many times and says, no, like I, like I believe Jesus. I believe that you are the Christ. I believe that you are the Messiah. But then in those last fleeting moments of Jesus's life, Peter's like, I don't even know Jesus at all, right? So 
If that's what typifies him before this letter, a compulsive and impetuous disciple who would like vacillate and compromise at the sight of a middle school girl, right? His name, Peter, means rock, but most of the time we just see Peter being as dumb as a rock, right? So, so, so what has changed? Because as we get into Peter's letter, you kind of go like, this is just, there's something different. Like, this guy's just different now. So what has changed? Because it's not the Peter that we see in Mark's gospel. It's not the Peter then that we see in this letter. And what's changed for Peter is that he saw his friend, like his best friend, clearly and unquestionably dead on a Roman cross. That all makes sense. You get stuck on a Roman cross, you're going to die. That's what happened. What was inexplicable to Peter is that then he saw his friend some three days later who had walked out of a tomb. And then he takes a stroll with Peter along the sea. And so resurrection, the fact that he now has a living Messiah and a living Savior who was once dead and fully dead, who is now alive. That's what changes for Peter. And he's now designated himself as an apostle, right? Which simply means this one. He's identifying himself as an apostle, which means this. He's simply a sent one. He's commissioned by Jesus to go and preach the gospel and to make disciples. And he's become one of the most significant leaders in the early church. In the early days as the church is being formed, Peter's there. After the church like is freshly minted, right? Like you go through the book of Acts and you see this unfold and Jesus ascends into heaven, right? And then a few moments later, um, you see Peter stand up in the book of Acts and he takes center stage. The city was swollen population-wise with like all of these people that were coming for this holiday. And Peter takes center stage in the middle of the city and he stands up and he preaches and proclaims the gospel. And it says that like 3,000 people responded in faith and he still, though, has some of his old tendencies, like when you kind of track with who Peter is, like you get to chapter 10 of the book of Acts, and Peter has this like crazy vision, if you guys know this story, he sees this like blanket descending from heaven in this dream, and he sees all kinds of animals like frolicking on it, right? Um, there's, there's bunnies in there, and there's like things that historically he, his people were not allowed to eat, like, you know, there's there's seafood in there, there, there's shellfish in there, there's pigs in there. I call it the, the pig in a blanket dream. Here's the deal, that's my attempt at a dad joke, um, and I don't do them well, right? So like, what you get built in when you become a dad is you get a dad bod real quick. Um, that just comes with it, but unfortunately dad jokes don't come with it. So I'm gonna try a couple today and see how they work, but it usually doesn't go well for me. Okay, so here's the deal, he sees this vision, he gets this blanket, well, God tells him, you can eat all of it, right? Eat all of it. And he's like, ah, I'm not getting fooled this time. He's like, no way. And God has to like, keep reassuring him. So you see these old tendencies of doubt in Peter, these old tendencies of impulsiveness in Peter. And, and now listen, like, I believe Jesus gave Peter his name as a declaration, not of, of who he was. Like, if we just stop with Mark and the other accounts that we get of Peter, we'd go like, yeah, that's, you would not build anything with this guy. This is not a guy that you would trust to, like, take this new movement and take it places, right? So I, I don't think that Jesus names Simon Peter because of who he was. I think Jesus takes Peter aside and renames him because of who he was going to become. 
And we see pictures of that in this letter. Like, he doesn't start out like a solid rock, right? But as his story progresses, as Peter matures into what it means to be a follower of Jesus, as the Holy Spirit works in him to transform him, transform him, he, he gets to like the very end of his life. And Peter's arrested. And he's given this opportunity once again to spare his life, to save his own life, if he would simply recant once again and deny Jesus, he'll be spared. But Peter doesn't. He doesn't even as much flinch this time. He stands firm and he declares his allegiance to Christ and he's crucified for it. And tradition and history holds that his request, his one last request is that he would be placed on the cross, inverted or upside down because he's not worthy to die like Jesus had died. And I love, like, you have to see, like, that's not the Peter that we just looked at last week, right? There's a different Peter operating here. And I love that it's Peter who writes this letter because for those of us that continue to wrestle and struggle and fail and falter, just trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus, which is pretty much all of us and liars, this letter gives us hope. He's one of the greatest failures in the Bible, and yet God uses him and he finishes well. If there's anyone that would understand Paul's words in Philippians 1.6, it's Peter. As Paul writes that he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. And that's Peter all day long. If it, even when, when Peter was faithless, we see Jesus being faithful to him. So, so that's a picture of Peter, the guy that wrote this letter. And you need to kind of know that. You need to know how Peter's operating and what his experiences were to see how some maybe 30 years later after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, we get this different Peter writing this letter, right? So he's an apostle. He's commissioned and sent by Jesus. That also means he's been given this authority from Jesus. So here's what we're going to do. We need to exposit a couple of these things, right? So we're going to go back to these verses. Um, we're just going to start right in verse 1. To those who are elect of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, there's a lot in there, but I want us to address like that particular term, dispersion, first. Who are the dispersion, right? Well, Peter's writing this letter, and the intention is that it's going to be circulated to all these different areas. So it's not a personal correspondence, right? He says up front, it's not going to a person. It's going to this group of people that are spread throughout in all these different areas, right? And those areas um, most commonly would be called Asia Minor, but today it's like modern-day Turkey. So these regions all existed historically in what is now modern-day Turkey. And it will, this letter is going to move throughout all of these small little ecclesias or, or gatherings of Jesus followers in their towns and their cities, right? And so he's writing this not, not in his mid-60s, but in the mid-60s AD, right? Pro probably just shortly before his execution. And it's approximately, again, like about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we have to understand that the disciples that, that the letter is meant to go to in these areas, right? They're not coming from places and cultures that are shaped and formed through a Judeo-Christian ethic, 
right? So in many ways, these areas, they are pre-Christian cultures, which means that at the end of the day, like they're pretty skeptical, right? They're a little fearful of this thing that's like sweeping through the region, this followers of this guy, Jesus, and they're seeing people in their towns and their cities and their families and their co-workers like coming to know Jesus. And so they're threatened by that, right? They would have been suspicious of the people involved in this movement. It's strange and foreign to them. So in many cases, they've seen their loved ones and they've seen their friends get swept into all of this Jesus stuff. And they're like, we just don't get it. And it's even a little frightening to them. Like our, our friends and family, like, are they getting like dragged away into some like cult, right? And so in, in, in many instances, making a commitment to follow Jesus meant you, you had a lot to lose, right? Your, your family, your job, your reputation, your livelihood, your social standing, and in some cases, even worse, right? Um, Christians would have been marginalized and oppressed and persecuted just for simply declaring that they follow Jesus. So the pressure on them to, to bend like a little, right? To just like make a little compromise. It was overwhelming, like just a little denial. Like this isn't worth risking your life, right? That's what the people that Peter is writing to are tempted with. Hey, listen, I can claim this privately, but in those public spaces, like I'll get kicked out of them. I'll get ostracized. And so it's very tempting to like hide that about yourself. So who better to write and encourage them as a person that had, had walked through those experiences himself. So we have to recognize, right? And, and for us, like, man, where we live, and we have to really kind of do some hard work here, um, we have to acknowledge that our reality probably could not be more different than the people that Peter is writing to. Like, we're all, for the most part, Westerners in here. We live in a culture. We've been born into a culture that has been shaped by Judeo-Christian values. And, and listen, like, it's easy to, like, make too much of this and apply this too directly to us, right? Um, and it's also easy to just dismiss that and say, like, well, that's not true for us either. But I think it's fair if you step back and if you're a student of culture to, to be aware of this, right? Like we're not persecuted here. Like there's not as much to risk, but listen, like obviously if you're paying attention, Christianity's influence and its acceptance is, is waning in the Western world. Like we are swiftly um, in certain parts of this country, even becoming like post-Christian um, and so we have to kind of process what that means, right? Um, we're also seeing the influence of Christianity like lose its favor and its effect within the church, right? So we see how this is kind of playing out. Like many once professing Christians are either like disaffiliating from the church, if not deconstructing altogether. Now let me just pause there. Those two terms can be a little controversial today. And it is not meant to be adversarial at all. Like if you find yourself walking through a difficult season and you're asking big questions about the church and about your faith and it's leading you to disaffiliate from the church or it's leading you to deconstruct your faith, like we don't want to be combative to you. That is not our goal. Our heart for you is that we love you. We want this to be a safe place where you can ask all sorts of questions. 
I may not have all the answers. Listen, like we're all trying to figure this out together, but please don't hear me wrong just because I said the truth of that and it, and it is happening. Um, we want you to stay and be a part of this and we're just all trying to figure this out together. So we want to love you well and walk alongside you through that. So all of that being said, the, the cultural and politics and, and social structures that Peter's writing this letter to, we have to recognize it could not be more distinct from our reality. So for us to like kind of like blankly apply first Peter over us as if it's the same thing, it's not, right? We have to recognize that. So we also have to recognize like first Peter can be preached really wrongly, right? Like we can make ourselves out in the American church as the persecuted people. Um, so it takes a little bit more for us as Westerners that are shaped and formed in the reality of a Judeo-Christian ethic and value. It, it takes us a little bit more work to read Peter rightly here. Okay, so we do have hard work. We've got to kind of like disconnect ourselves from our reality and try to understand the situation that Peter was writing into, right? Because all too often, I think we see the church like for whatever reason, like we get all riled, like we engage, like as Christianity's influence is waning, we think that, that our mission then is to engage with whatever raging battle is going on in the never-ending culture war. Like our job as, as Christianity is slipping out of favor, like we're not called to be the PR people for the church and try to make it back into the positions of power and favor. We are to present the gospel, right? So we don't, we're not called to engage in, in this never-ending culture war, right? Whatever's trending on social media, we jump into, right? Scrapping and fighting to maintain Christianity's relevancy to our culture. That's not Peter's point at all right? He writes to encourage and exhort Jesus followers in the midst of like intense, if not severe persecution to remain faithful to Jesus, to suffer like Jesus suffered. And he uses that term exile to connect them to the history of the people of God. Um, that's a confusing term, probably a better translation of that word than exile because that's kind of a pretty loaded statement would be like foreigner or stranger but but it all gets the point right like like we're meant to be seen as as pilgrims who have now been born again or strangers or foreigners or exiles that have been born again to a living hope and to an inheritance that is being kept in heaven for us and so there is this reality that like Everything here now should feel foreign to us and strange, or probably more important, we should feel foreign and strange as followers of Jesus to this broken worldly system around us, right? So Peter helps us then to set our hope and our joy as exiles or foreigners on, on things not in this world, but things that are unseen. And he, and he reminds us that our pilgrimage will lead us through all these various trials and sufferings, okay? And so in this, Peter's going to help us throughout this letter, and we're just teeing this up today, right? To, to understand the exilic nature of the church, and he's going to walk through like these three key areas or these three relationships that, that you're going to see throughout this letter. He's going to instruct Jesus followers, here's how you are to interact in your relationship with God who has elected us, Here's how you to interact with the world in which you live in, and here's how you are to interact with other Jesus followers. So 
So that's kind of the point. We need to first tee it up, and we're going to do more work with this as we get in, to understand that, that somehow we, we are meant to, to operate as, as foreigners or strangers. Like The world will look at the church, and the world will say, that just seems weird right? Like we're not okay with that on, on, on a lot of levels. Like we want to make ourselves relevant, but there is this reality that like, as we exist in this world, it should seem foreign to us, right? Not in like big drastic ways, right? We're going to get into this more. Like think about this, like if you've been to a foreign country, like I've been to Mexico several times and a lot of border towns really like typify this. Like you can be on this side of the border and cross over to like Mexicali, right? And, and you know instantly that you're just in a place that is not your home. It's different. The language is different. The signs are just everything about it. The sights, the sounds, everything. So it's not quite like that. Like I don't think we operate in this place that we're so distinctly different from and different from us. It's more like when you go to Canada, right? <laughs> yes. And you walk around Canada and you go like, everything kind of seems the same in a lot of ways, but then it's also just kind of different, right? And so if you've been to like Vancouver, you can kind of walk around like the architecture is slightly different. Um, the Dunkin' Donuts is slightly different in that it's Tim Ho's, right? And you're like, well, that's weird and they serve different things. Um, everybody's super apologetic. And so you should operate in that. Like it's not so, you're not so stark that you're like, this doesn't feel like, there's pieces of this because it is God's good creation that is now suffering under sin. And so we operate in this world and we should go like, there are things that feel very familiar to us, but that, that is also distinct. And that's kind of Peter's whole goal is to set this up, right? So let's move on to verse two and we're gonna wrap up here. So according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So now that you put those first two sentences together, like those first two verses, I hope you see like, like as I was digging into this, I'm like, I don't know that Peter could have packed more dense theology into two verses, right? Like this, this, just these two verses could have been multiple weeks of a sermon, right? Um, and we don't have time for that today. And we want to get into the letter and see how he applies these terms throughout the letter. Um, and so we're going to deal with this. First, I want to deal with words like election and foreknowledge. I get that some of those words might trigger some of you a little bit, right? Just chill out. We're going to walk through this very slowly. But let me just say this before we get too deep into this. Like, there's so much divide over the various positions here with these terms. Like, we have a tendency to get all tribal about our beliefs and our theology. And if you're sitting here thinking, like, I don't even know what he's talking about. I don't know what I believe. Don't worry. I'm going to tell you what to believe, right? <laughs> So, just kidding. So, there's, real quick, A, like, there's a lot of, you just have to recognize, there's a lot of, like, just misinformation and misunderstanding around these terms. B, there's a lot more common ground than you think. And then three, and yeah, I switched it up. I just want to tell you what the Bible is saying here. Like, I don't want us to get caught up in, like, all of these secondary arguments because listen, when Peter wrote this letter, he wasn't trying to be a troll to these people. He didn't want to, he didn't write this letter to cause more like theological confusion for them, right? Because again, they're, they're, they're suffering under the weight of being ostracized, 
of, of, for their, their decision to follow Jesus, that they're being marginalized, if not oppressed and persecuted, right? So Peter's not writing this letter to cause more confusion. That would be like, and just to troll them, like that would be like handing someone who needed to be comforted like a Rubik's cube or a chalkboard with some fake fingernails, right? Remember, he's trying to comfort these people. He wants to bring clarity to a suffering people. So instead, this letter is like a warm blanket and meat with some gravy. It's like comforting to them, right? So Peter wants them to know that before all of this even was, right? Before the tallest mountain was forged, before the deepest sea was formed, before any star was set into the sky, God knew you and was forming you and chose you. That in the midst of their darkest moments, as the people that Peter is writing to faced like unthinkable rejection and were ostracized, Peter wants them to know that God knows you, chose you, and loves you. To, to people that were being unchosen by their family and friends, cast out and unaccepted, Peter wants them to know that they are now chosen by God, brought in by him, and accepted. So, so what are election and foreknowledge? You are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. That's what he says is their identity before anything else. So so that, that word elect, like, man, I get it. Like, some of you might go like, no, you have to preach election today. Um, and and so, so, yeah, like, I'm, I'm kind of preaching election light. Like, just the fact that these people would be comforted to know that they were chosen by God. Now, there's a lot more to that that we could unpack. We can have that discussion. I just don't want to have a fight today about it, right? I just want you to hear it like the people that read this letter, heard it. They were just comforted by the fact that their God loves them and chose them when everybody else was not. So let's deal with foreknowledge real quick. So, so some people think that foreknowledge necessarily means foreseeing, right? And, and they conflate the two often. Like God foresaw the future, meaning God looked into the future and it was revealed to him who would choose them. Like that's Wrong thinking just in that God is not bound to time, and so there's no, like, peering into the future for God. Like, he just sees it all, right? And so a lot of times we look at foreknowledge, and we're like, oh, God had to look through all of this to the specific point in time where you choose him, so he chooses you. That's not what that means, right? Um, it's not that God only chooses who he sees would choose him. Um, because really the problem with that is the Bible, right? Because, because if you flip to other places, like Romans 3, like what does Paul say in verses 10 and 12? He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one else does good, not even one, right? So the problem isn't that God can't see all things. It's not that not one single human chooses God. Like that's the inherent problem. Like God doesn't have to peer through time to see who's going to choose him because we don't, because we won't, because we can't, because we are spiritually dead in our sin and our trespasses, dead to the things of God, blind to his truth and reality. So the teaching of election and foreknowledge is that throughout the scriptures, and it's not 
there as some means of like apologetics. It's just simply assumed by the authors that God in his foreknowledge chose you. Like, for example, this guy, Jesus, talked about this. Like, maybe you've heard of him. Like, Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, Jesus says, No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. He didn't say, like, hey, as long as you choose God, you can know God. No one knows the Father. It's only when the Son chooses him, right? So um, it doesn't say, notice that once you choose Jesus, he'll choose you. Those who take the initiative or when you take a step closer to God in belief, he'll take a step closer to you. Now, listen, there's tons more scriptures that just back that up, but I really want us to get under this, and I want us to see the glory and like the amazing reality of this teaching. We need to see this, right? It's those that have submitted to Christ, committed to following Him, they are simply there because of God's work in them, because He initiates, He chooses, right? And it begins with this like fundamental understanding that God is always the pursuer. He's always the initiator. Joshua Ryan Butler writes in his book, The Pursuing God, he says, our problem is not that we are reaching out for God and he's refusing to be found. It's the opposite. It's God's reaching out for us and we're scattering in other directions. God loves us, but we love darkness. God moves towards us, but sin can't stand the presence of God. So it's not that we attempt to convince God. We don't stand before God and try to make a right argument for why he should accept us or take us. God compels us and reveals himself to us through the work of the Holy Spirit and the gospel, and he chooses us. We don't find ourselves pursuing God and then having to overcome his resistance to us. God desires us, and he pierces through our resistance to him. We don't break down God's unwillingness. He tears down ours. We don't try to win God over with our works. He wins us over with his grace. In Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, he writes, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. You see, foreknowledge doesn't simply mean that God like peers into the future like some mystic seer. Rather, it means that he has always known you. The word know in the Bible doesn't mean like, hey, I, like, I know your name and I know how you like take your coffee, right? Which is black, always black. It means more intimate and deep connection than that. David writes that he knows, he was known in his mother's womb. He was knitted together by God. So, so here's the comfort. Election means that I'm not good, but I am loved. I am not deserving, but I am loved. I can do nothing to earn or merit my salvation, but I am loved. All right, that's all I have to say about that. And if you want to argue with me about that more, Again, we can make an appointment, never, just kidding. Like, listen, I, I just said it. Like, we want you to ask questions. Like this, of course, brings up a lot of questions and we're here for it. So um, let's just keep jamming. Let's just step back, right? 
from, from, from that, because, because Peter's revealing something else here, right? Let's just read this together one last time. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. So listen, we're going we're gonna to wrap this up, and we do this every Sunday, and I just, as a means of explanation, and I say this a lot, listen, like, it would be super easy to give you guys some points here to walk out with, um, but we just don't feel the compulsion to do that. Listen, like, a lot of us sat in churches for so many years where what we were handed in sermons was like moral informed applications to say like, go out of here and do this and be better. And man, like you give me three things, I can't even remember one and I'll fail at the one that I do, right? Like, and so none of us, like that in so many ways, like that is what led to so many of us asking bigger questions and in some ways like even deconstructing our faith because so for, for so many years we were handed these like moral informed applications or we were taught that like, man, like God's design for you is that you would be wealthy and prosperous. And so we have this issue right today in our church, which is like we forgot, we forgot to, to preach the gospel to our people. We forgot to proclaim the gospel of truth. And so every Sunday as we end our time together, I just want you to sit under the banner of the gospel. And so that's what you're going to get here. That's what you get every single Sunday at Hub City. So let's just look at this again. Look at the work of each person of the triune God, which is at work in you today. If you're a follower of Jesus, here's how, how it works. You are foreknown by the Father. You are sanctified or set apart by the Spirit. That means you're made distinct. You're redeemed and covered by the blood of Christ. So that, that last piece takes us to the Old Testament, right? Blood in the Old Testament was a symbol for death. And, and we see this because of our sin. Death was required to satisfy the penalty of our sin. And in the Old Testament, there would be this annual day where the blood of a pure and spotless animal would be spilled in the place of all the people of Israel, and it would cover their sin for that year. And that atoning sacrifice would bring them back to God in a relationship with him. But the problem was, and even the author of Hebrews points this out, the blood of bulls and goats like were never enough to satisfy, right? That's why that, that day came year after year after year, the day of atonement. It, it never fully or finally satisfied God's wrath. So out of his deep love for creation, instead from his desire to once again walk and talk in the beauty of his creation, of what he spoke into existence, with those that he spoke into existence, he sends Jesus to be the once and for all atoning sacrifice his perfect, unblemished, undefiled life given freely, his precious and life-giving blood spilled fully to take the full wrath of God that was meant to be placed on us, was placed on him, and then he took our sin to the cross where he beat the hell out of it. He absorbs God's wrath for us so that God's favor could be placed on us. And he removes our shame and our guilt and declares us no longer enemies of God, no longer condemned so that we can no longer be in his presence, but ushers us into the throne room of grace so we can stand before the living and holy God boldly with confidence 
But that confidence is not found in our work or our efforts. It's found in Christ and his finished work. We're reconciled to God because of the blood of Jesus that now covers us. He dies, we live, he is cast out, we are brought in. And all of this happens because, as Peter states, for the obedience to Jesus and for sanctification, we are chosen, we are elect. God in his foreknowledge knew us. We're set apart by the Spirit, covered by the blood of Jesus because of that. Now we're just going to be different. We're exiles. We're, we're strangers and foreigners to this. We're like Jesus said this in John's gospel. He said that the world would be offended by the gospel and the people of the gospel, right? We're strangers to this world and its cultures and its values and its ethics. So what does that mean? Well, it means this world in its sin-sick status is not our forever home. That's why it doesn't function like home. It doesn't feel like home. It should feel slightly unfamiliar to us. Our true home is with the risen Jesus in his kingdom. And when that day that we advent for today comes, the church is waiting for this moment for Jesus to return. When Christ returns for his bride and restores all of creation, we, ha we will have reached our final destination. And this sin-riddled world and all of its curses will be undone when Jesus comes to this earth, returns here, and reunites the kingdom of heaven with the kingdom of this earth, his kingdom, and ushers in, finally, peace and hope. And if we, as Jesus followers today, if we try to make this place feel too much like home, we'll be frustrated, we'll be disappointed because this broken world can never satisfy the deepest longing of our souls, of our hearts. Only Christ and his kingdom can. There should always be just this unsettling feeling that we experience like something's not quite right. And I would argue if you ever lose that feeling, it's maybe because you've capitulated to the world. It's because Maybe you found, albeit temporary, relief from the pain and suffering in something that will perish in this world. If following Jesus for you never leads you not to follow this world or to put you in opposition to this world and its values, then you might need to reevaluate just how serious you are about following Jesus. And listen, there are pieces of this culture, we need to get this, that are beautiful and right, and would bring glory to God. So we're not called to cloister off from it, to be separatists from it. We are called to engage and seek the redemption of culture. The church always has to use wisdom wherever it exists to perceive which pieces of culture are to be redeemed and which pieces of culture are to be rejected. But we don't wage war on culture as a whole because because culture is it's people. It's, it's where they live, and it's born out of their own unique experiences. We're called to redeem those pieces of culture that God designed for his flourishing and for, for, for glory. And so when you understand that, you understand who you are, you understand the way that you live in this world is to be set apart and unique. And yeah, you'll take some shots, right? But the question Peter's letter is going to ask of us as we get into this is this. 
while the world slips further and further into chaos and sin, while the world effectively, this worldly system, like loses its mind, will you remain faithful to Jesus? Will you remain faithful to the mission that Jesus has called his church to? Will you stand firm in the grace of God? So we got a long way to go through this. I'm excited for it. I hope you guys tune in. Let's take some time to respond now. Let's respond to who Jesus is and what he's done. We're going to do that in a few ways here. We're going to sing. So Austin's going to come back up here. Um, We would ask that you take some quiet moments and just interact with God in prayer. Um, If Hub City is your home, we would ask that you would give in a spirit of worship. You can do that in a few ways. You can do that online today. You can do that. There's a box on your way out the door you can hand checks into. Um, We want you to do that, though, um, as worship. And then finally, we get called to the table. We get called to the table that solidifies who we are as a people. We get called to the table that, that unifies us as a people. One of the things that we're going to find throughout the letter of Peter is that what God has given us beyond Jesus is he's given us us. He's given us each other, and we'll see how these relationships interact with each other. And so we get to go to the table today, and we get to become God's people today as we worship King Jesus, as we surrender to the truth of who he is and what he's accomplished and we share in this meal that is his body that was broken for us, that is his blood that was spilled out for us, that covers us today. Let me pray and let's respond. Father, we thank you so much.